thought at the time that the elites were not like the elites of old. Uh, whatever you think of Thomas Jefferson, and of course, he's a, a problematic character in a number of ways, but he was a literate person who was a, a figure of the Enlightenment, all of its contradictions, and he dabbled in philosophy and, and science and so on, and was a cultivated man of learning, such as one could be in the 1700s, right? But at the, there's been a decline that was evident to Mills even in the 1950s, and uh, it's only gotten worse because the higher immorality has been even further enshrined in this in this whole system. So he points out that they're less learned today, less culturally enlightened, and that there's really no unity between knowledge and, and power anymore. If the if the power elite encounters intellectuals or or makes use of them in any way, it's as hired people. Okay, and Mills is always saying hired men, right? Everything in Mills is about men because it was men who were running everything back then. And some people have, especially liberals that want to critique Mills, they say, like, there's some really funny articles from the 90s where some, like, kind of nerdy liberals uh, and progressive types are saying, like, well, Mills was wrong about this, and he didn't take race into account and so on. But what's a, what I what I think is pretty amazing about Mills is you can read it, and, yeah, he does have the sensibilities of someone in the 1950s in terms of, like, he's not a, a you know, a woke person, at all. And he kind of by default talks about men and he doesn't really talk about race very much. But what's really amazing about this is that his analysis of the of the power structure is still so true, even with those kind of omissions or, or you know, problems with his with his writing, such as it is to where it, it to me really hammers home that the the primary contradictions of our time and, the, and the, the big things that we should be focused on, the most overriding despotic structures are, or, or aspects are imperialism and capitalism. That it doesn't really matter that you have, uh, that you bring some tokenism into these really corrupt institutions. Like it, it's not going to matter the gender of the corrupt person who is uh, in a position of power, because they're not going to get into that position of power unless they are, you know, a deeply immoral person who is able to project uh, a false image of themselves. And, and that really, that, that co-optation and kind of phoniness of success is, it, it has come to define the power elite such as it is. Um, and this ha has culminated in our present time. I mean, these, these guys do not even seem especially shrewd anymore. Uh, that are running things. And I think it's because what they want is basically impossible and insane, which is global hegemony forever and hegemony over dominance over the U.S. population and a sort of constant uh, crushing of any sort of democratic uh, efforts and reforms in the United States. And these are not things that you, that very, um, that great people would want to be a part of, you know? It's just you wouldn't want to do this. But and even if you were a decent person, then you wouldn't rise in these hierarchies in the first place. So this helps to explain why we are not a meritocracy at all. We're, uh, we're a demeritocracy and uh, the, where people who are possessed of like, you know, some terrible human characteristics and, uh, and immorality are the ones who are rewarded uh, with power, wealth and prestige in this society. This is a late empire. This is what it looks like. And Mills was was right on about this very early. And uh, it's again, it's something that's only more true now than it was even in his time. 
Aaron, another thing that you emphasize a lot throughout your book, American Exception, and that, of course, C. Wright Mills emphasized back in The Power Elite in 1956, was the close relationship between power and secrecy. Of course, we've talked a lot about the role of covert operations, which are inherently supposed to be secret or secretive, at least. And uh, a key part of the idea of the deep state of the kind of privatization of the security apparatus in the United States is secrecy. So in C. Wright Mill's conception, he could see this back in the 1950s, right when the CIA was still pretty new, a decade old. Uh, talk about his conception of the relationship between power and secrecy. Well, he pointed out that the power elite in America would typically operate with within organizations that already existed. Okay, so other organizations had arisen within and without the government, but and they could, they, they were either organizations that had influence from the top of the power structure to begin with, and so they were probably already pretty compatible with power elite, uh, you know, aims and, and motives. Uh, but additionally, the power elite have so much wealth and money at their disposal that they can even things, even other organizations that they might not have been too focused on, they can take over and dominate when they want to. And so uh, they will create them, but, but they will create them when they need to. They'll create new organizations. And when the U.S. went for a global empire, they had to create some new organizations because this was new in the American experience. And the uh, things that the organ parts of the federal government that had been running foreign policy in the past were just not sufficient for this. However, you did have right before the Cold War, you had World War II, which itself led to the creation of, you know, a large military bureaucracy. So, and even an intelligence service, the OSS, you know, a lot of those people are the ones that went on to run the CIA or advocated for the CIA to be created in the first place. So they, they created things like the National Security Council in, with the 1947 uh, National Security Act. Uh, they created the International Monetary Fund near the end of World War II to handle uh, the international payments problems uh, that, would, that would arise with this new system that America was going to uh, preside over. Uh, they created the United Nations to handle international disputes in, in, in some kind of large international forum that was, of course, centered around the U.S. and in, in, in New York City even. Um, they, they well, and, and, of course, rooted in the League of Nations, which was just a, you know, an old boys club of the imperial powers. And even that didn't really work because of, in the U.S. it never got ratified because it was considered to be like um, something that could impose or, or trespass on, on U.S. sovereignty to decide whenever the U.S. wanted to go to war or didn't want to go to war. So it was opposed by imperialists like famously Henry Cabot Lodge, the, the guy who was perhaps most responsible for the Spanish-American War from an elite Boston Brahmin family uh, whose fortunes came from the opium traffic. This is the guy that tanked the League of Nations. So these, these institutions are always imperfect. But even then, the, the U.S. runs into problems with them. So the U.S. has a bigger role than anybody else in designing these things, potentially more input into the League of Nations, the United Nations, than anyone else. But the U.S. will not even uh, really conform to whatever rules it sets out because the U.S. has to remain uh, in a state of exception. They, have to, they cannot bend international law. And even if they ratify the U.N. Treaty, which was ratified you know, by the Senate, which outlaws aggression, the UN Charter outlaws aggression, and the US violates this all the time. So these institutions are created, but they're ultimately only as strong as the, the power to uh, compel powerful actors to uh, obey the, the rules that they lay out. 
Uh, and the power elite can create instant can be behind the creation of something like the United Nations. And then when it's inconvenient to actually follow the rules that they pretty much made themselves, then they'll just not follow those rules. And then they'll just call it the liberal rules-based international order, right? Which is just, uh, you know, code for uh, America does whatever it wants. And, uh, it, you know, if you don't like it, you can lump it. And, you know, if you complain too much, we, you might be next. So that's, that seems to be the way that it operates. Now, the, the secrecy aspect of this, because it's also... You know, it goes against the the myths of the United States, the PR, the propaganda that the U.S. wants to put out about itself. You need uh, you need secrecy for this. So this is where and, and Mills and Mills points out in the privately incorporated permanent world war economy, the national security, such as it is, depends on having all these secret plans and goals, and that because of uh, the, the state secrecy and the fact that Mills is trying to understand these decisions and understand these decision makers, and yet he is limited in what he can see. But instead of saying that, like, well, because I'm limited in what I can see, I'm just going to take their public pronouncements and the editorials in the New York Times at face value and assume that, like, I've got to somehow base my ideas of reality on these things because other, there's just these other things I don't know. He focuses on the secrecy itself, which I think is something that we all should, should do. And not assume, we should assume at this point that we're being lied to and that a lot of decisions are being made in, in secrecy. Now, that doesn't mean that we should fill in these blank spots with like things that are crazy or irresponsible or unreasonable. But we do need to understand that the sheer level of secrecy that uh, among the, the powerful and powerful actors in the United States is a, is a very serious thing uh, that we need to understand and hash out the implications of. So he said that because of the secrecy, the power elite is likely not altogether surfaced. And he kind of contradicts himself here, but you can appreciate why in 1956 when there was so little that was known. So he says, uh, somewhat contradictorily, uh, there's nothing hidden about it, although its activities are not publicized, and that there's nothing conspiratorial about it, although its decisions are often publicly unknown and its mode of operation manipulative rather than explicit. So I write, while this can be stated about the elite as a collective, Mills does not acknowledge an important implication of his analysis. The structural processes he has elaborated have, in conjunction with organizational secrecy, given rise to organizations comprised of members of the power elite in which conspiracy is essentially institutionalized. To some extent, his caution is understandable. Many of the historic events which most dramatically support his theoretical framework were unknown to Mills due to the very secrecy he was attempting to illuminate. That was just an excerpt from the American Exception podcast. To hear the whole episode, as well as archived and new episodes, please subscribe to the American Exception podcast at Patreon. There's a link in the show notes, or you can just go to patreon.com slash American Exception. Subscribe and you can join us as we illuminate the dark side of the U.S. Empire. 